we're taking some time to focus on one of the most important subjects in the Scripture, and that is the worship of our God. In the next few moments, I'm eventually going to get to Isaiah chapter 40 as a main text this morning, if you would like to open there, but I'm not going to go there just yet. I want to focus this morning on how we are approaching God in our worship, how we're to express love and devotion to him. Remember, I reminded you last week, Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God isn't looking merely for Christians or for followers. He's looking for worshipers. And last week we read Psalm 29 and and unpacked a little bit of that psalm where the mightiest spirit beings are called upon to worship the Lord. And they say to him, you are all glorious and all powerful in your holiness. This morning we began our corporate worship with Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been trying to tell God that his work, especially his work through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, they are awesome deeds. So great, it says, your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This last verse is actually looking forward to the day when everyone on earth will truly worship and praise the Lord. In fact, those verbs there can actually be translated uh, as, as future verbs. All the earth will worship you. They will sing praises to you. So what does it mean to worship the Lord? Well, as we saw last week, worship is not something we have to learn to do. There is a way in which we are all born to worship. We will all worship something or someone, whether we try to or not. Worship is simply the response that comes from our heart. When we encounter something we think is awesome or amazing, worship takes place whenever we say, wow, to something. When we're amazed or full of wonder in our heart, it it happens inside, and then our body responds, and sometimes we can't say anything. We just step back in amazement. So when the Bible calls us to worship God, it's calling us to recognize who God is and to be amazed and to step back in wonder and in true submission. Christian worship, then, is the response that comes from our heart when we encounter the living and true God. When we truly contemplate who He is and what He has done, His creative power, His infinite wisdom, His absolute control, His sheer beauty, his eternal love. In fact, I want you to notice again this verse, which which strikes us as a little bit curious, uh, verse 4, where it says, God's enemies come cringing before him like captives brought before a conquering king. In other words, when they are made to behold him as he is, and what does Paul say? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. When they are made to behold him as he is, they must recognize his greatness, whether they love him or not. 
They will respond to that power and that majesty even though he will judge them. And that is one of the first things we learn about worship. Worship is a response. Worship is not so much an action as it is a reaction. And so inevitably, whenever the Bible is calling us to worship or when the authors of Scripture proclaim their worship of God, there is always a reason to worship. There's always something we're responding to. And I brought this point up last week, but I want to make sure we really understand it before we move a step forward. If we continue to read Psalm 66, we find this immediately, this idea of worship being a response. Because if you'll notice here, the psalm writer invites us to see why he is telling Israel to praise God. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. That's the Red Sea story. They passed to the river on foot. He's referring to the Jordan River drying up as they could walk across it into the promised land. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. That's a warning. If you try to rise above God, to turn away from him, you cannot escape his judgment. He is awesome. He is powerful. Nobody escapes. Bless our God, O his peoples, verse 6. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living, who has not let our feet slip. Now listen to this. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads and we went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I don't think he's talking here about the bondage of Egypt, even though he mentioned the Red Sea a moment ago and he alluded to the Jordan River. He's probably talking here about a more recent trial that Israel as a nation went through. And he's calling on his people to praise the Lord in that he was faithful during that trial and brought them out on the other side. But then the person writing this psalm gets personal. He wants everyone to know what God has done for him and his own trial. So he says in verse 16, Come come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Have you ever had a chance to say that to somebody? Come here and listen. I want to tell you what God's done for me. He's rejoicing in something personal. He says, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Notice verse 20. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The word because is a word to pay attention to whenever we see it in the biblical accounts to call us to worship. Sometimes you'll see the little word for. We talked about that last week. It translates the little Hebrew word key. It is the reason we're called to worship. And if worship is a response, then there has to be a reason, something that we are responding to. We can find examples like that all over the scriptures, especially the Psalms. I love uh, Psalm 148, for instance. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. 
praise him in the heights. He's going to talk about praising God in the heavens and all the spirit beings and all of the things created in the heavens called to worship him. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord and then notice, for he commanded and they were created. There's a ground for for praising. There's a reason for it. He has established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And then immediately the psalm begins to call all the earth to worship the Lord. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail and mist, snowy storm or snowy wind fulfilling, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. And then notice once again, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and the heaven. That's what Psalm 48 is. It's a call to all of heaven and all the earth to worship the Lord, but there's a ground for it. There's a reason for it. You see, whenever we truly worship, there is something we're responding to. And in Christian worship, our response is to the person of the living and true God. Now, I want to go a step further this morning. If it is true that worship is the response that comes from our heart when we encounter the true and living God, there are at least two essential observations that we can make about worship. Two essential observations that logically flow from this definition. And more importantly, they're, they're supported by the scripture. And I want to take the first of these observations this morning. And next week we will take the second observation. If it is true that Christian worship is a response that comes from the heart, when we encounter that living and true God, then first of all, authentic Christian worship depends upon our knowledge of the living and true God. And I hope that makes obvious sense. If Christian worship is a response to the living and true God, but I do not know how, I, I do not know much about the true and living God, then how can I expect to be moved by him? What is there to respond to? What am I ooing and eyeing at? So if our knowledge of God is shallow, guess what? Our worship of God will also be shallow. If we don't know who it is we're responding to, how can we truly worship? We, we can go through the motions of worship. We can join in with others who are worshiping and we can stand and sing and read the scripture on the screen and, and we can learn the traditions of worship. And by the way, there should be value even in simply that coming into a worshiping congregation and participating in the worship, even if we come in and have a weak understanding of who God is. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that an unbeliever should come in and, and, and if they're, they're trying to worship with you, should fall down and be under conviction and say, God is truly among you. Because right worship should teach us about the one we're worshiping. Right worship teaches us to worship rightly. 
But unless we are responding ourselves personally to reveal truth about the living and true God that we know and are convicted by ourselves, then our ability to participate in authentic worship is greatly hindered. If we are going to worship God, we first of all have to know something about God. Now, when we say we have to know something about God, there are at least two ways that we come to have a knowledge of God, and both of these are essential for the growing believer. And these two are essential for our worship. I cannot stress what I'm about to say enough this morning. Don't think of them as sub-sub points under a bigger point, and I'm going to get to this point later and this kind of thing. This is essential for our worship. We must properly, first of all, understand who God is. We must know in our minds truths about God and about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and about the Holy Spirit. We have to know precious theological truths about God. In fact, there's a lot of people who say, you know, how do we know, how can we tell a mature believer? There's a lot of things that can point to a mature believer. Sometimes we think people are really mature in the Lord, and sometimes it's just their personality just seems more holy, or maybe they're, they're more winsome with people, and it's easier for them to share the gospel and, and things like that. How does, what does the scripture say about our maturity? I don't have time to go there uh, this morning to, to text about this, but if, if, we will, if you'll study uh, the scripture, one of the main things the scripture says is if you know the word of God, you're, the depth of your knowledge of the word is a signal of your maturity. You, you can know the word of God. You can know what's in it and not be a mature believer, but you cannot be a mature believer and not know what's in the word of God. It is essential. We can learn these truths from our parents, from our teachers, pastors, authors of literature, but ultimately everyone who says something true about God derives that truth from the sacred, script, from the sacred scriptures. We have to get our knowledge of the Bible from God. We can find knowledge of God and what he has done anywhere in the Bible. But I would like us to look at Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. And I want to use this as an example of how we come to know the God whom we worship. Isaiah chapter 40 begins this way. I'm going to start in verse 9, actually. <clears throat> he says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. In Psalm 66, the author says, come, I want to show you what God's done for me. In, in Isaiah 40, he says, lift up for all to see and call everybody to behold their God. And so we're, we're in a passage of scripture that is going to ask us to behold God. We're going to discover theological truths about God. So notice, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So here we see the power of God and the reward of God and the blessing of God. And if we keep reading, we see the care of God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those who are with young. And if we are ever doubtful whether God has the power to care for us, look at how big and mighty and wise he is. Verse 13, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span 
and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? The rhetorical answer is nobody. God could not be instructed by anybody. Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness. So, so here so far, God is all wise. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's far superior to anything we can imagine in humankind. So Isaiah poses this question in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Is God an idol, he says? And his answer is going to be emphatically no. But in simply, instead of simply saying no, no way, or anything like that, Isaiah demonstrates how ridiculous an idol is, a hunk of metal or a hunk of wood in comparison to the true and living God. He says an idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished For an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. It does not matter how sophisticated, by the way, your man-made God is. They can't compare to the living and true God. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So God himself repeats the question. And we realize it's not just a question, it's a challenge. What am I like, he says. And notice as we read that we never really get an answer from God to this question. The question is intended to leave us baffled, searching for an answer as we are simply confronted by God's magnificent power and majesty. He says in verse 25, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who created all of this. He who brings out by their hosts, their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, oh, my, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right hand, or, uh, and, and my right is, is disregarded by my God. God doesn't know what I'm doing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men 
shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is who our God is. And you know what? We often need to be reminded when we're struggling, this is the God that we worship. This is the God to whom we can flee. And in this marvelous text that calls us to behold our God, we see him who is transcendent, right? He's far above all things. He's exalted over all he has made, so separate from us that it is an abomination to craft any image of him, anything that would come from our imagination where we say, this is our God. He's all-seeing, powerful beyond description, wise beyond human comprehension, immense beyond our reckoning, yet, yet, he is someone who has stooped down to meet our needs, compassionate, loving, and caring. This is who our God is. And our conviction about these realities should move us to step back and say, wow, to worship him. But we need to go even farther in our understanding of what it means to know God. Because I could summarize everything this passage says about God into doctrinal categories. We do this in our seminary. We teach systematic theology. And you can memorize all of these theological facts about God. And yet, and yet not really know God. In fact, there is a part of knowing God that is actually more foundational for properly worshiping God than simply knowing the doctrines of God. We can memorize all the truths, all the concepts, all the precepts. And yet, if we are going to know God, not only must we properly understand who God is, but we also must understand what God is like. And this part of our understanding is not shaped by so many words so many doctrinal statements, as important as the doctrinal statements are. The part of our understanding here is shaped by often the description of God, the poetic description, by sounds in Scripture, by rhythm, by word pictures, by poetry even. This part of our understanding lives in our imagination. What do we imagine when we think of he who is invisible and his son who has not yet returned for us. If we are going to worship properly, we must properly imagine the one whom we are worshiping. You see, more is going on in Isaiah 40 than maybe at first occurs to us. First, you need to realize that this is actually poetry. That's why if you look at a modern translation, they will often try to show you what the Hebrew poetry is doing. Now, we don't appreciate it the way a Hebrew-speaking person would. We're seeing an English translation of it. But they're trying to to make you understand that this is poetry and a a Hebrew-speaking person would, would read the text in this way. There is a reason that God often uses poetry to communicate truth. In fact, most of the scripture is poetic and it's narrative. It's something that captures our imagination. There's something else God could have said besides what he says here in verse 11. God could have said, hey, I love you. I'll take care of you. If you have a problem, you can depend on me. Is that all true? Yes, it's all true. Praise the Lord is true. 
That's a fact about God that I can get in my head, and it tells me who God is. But God also wants us to know what he's like. And so instead of, instead of saying all those things about himself, this is what he says. He says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is what God is like. He's like a good shepherd. I know the fact about his care, but he wants my knowledge of him to go deeper than that. He wants me to know he is my shepherd. And like a faithful, capable shepherd, he will tenderly care for me. I'm a helpless lamb that he carries, not at arm's length, not behind his back like he's embarrassed of me, He carries me close in his bosom. He's a gentle shepherd. Leading those, did you notice, who are with young. In other words, gently caring for those who also have cares. That's what our God is like. God also could have said, I am big and powerful. Well, okay, how big? Very big. How big is that? Think bigger. I mean, how much can we really describe the immensity of God? But this is what he says in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's an image that God wants us to get into our minds. Now, the Bible technically says God is a spirit. He has no body like men. How can he have a hand? He doesn't. It's a metaphor. He's trying to give us a picture to help us understand what he's like. That's how big he is. Think about all the oceans of the world that God just holds right here. Or it says he measures or marks off the heavens with a span. A span is the the length from your thumb to your longest finger in in Bible times. They would measure things off like a span, like some of you have done when you can't find the ruler. You know what I'm talking about? And you're trying to measure something, it never goes right when you try to do that. Um, But but, but you can see God, you know, not not just saying, okay, one, two, three. I imagine him saying, well, it's maybe about half, you know, just one span of God measuring the immensity of the heavens and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. You look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All of these governments, we hear about them all the time in the news. All of the, all the rulers, everything they're trying to do to people, all of that power, all of that money, all of that military right, might. He's like, it's just a drop from a bucket. It's nothing to God. And they're accounted as dust on the scales. I mean, it, it's, it's not, nothing you even notice on the scales. It's dust on the scales because they didn't get wiped off properly. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. You see, God's immensity, his size, okay, is a theological category. His, omnipot- his omnipotence is his affinity, his infinity applied to strength. God's eternality is his infinity applied to time. His uh, wisdom is his all his his uh, all knowledge is his infinity ap- applied to knowledge his his being omnipotent is infinity applied to strength and all of these theological categories should drive me to worship him there there are astounding things to consider 
But if I am truly to encounter the living and true God so that my heart responds in worship, I also have to have an understanding of what God is like. And I cannot emphasize this point enough. If you're wondering why some churches worship one way and some worship another, even though they all seem to have similar theology, and you wondered that, I'm sure. What I'm saying here is one of the significant reasons. It's not the only reason, but it's a significant piece of the puzzle. Because you can find people with identical theology that have very different pictures of God in their minds. People who stand to worship God, who would affirm that God is all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing, a God who sent his son to die for us, who will one day come for us, but they are not necessarily imagining the same God. One might imagine God as an old grandfather type person who winks at sin. And I mean, it's like a grandfather to grandchildren. You know, that's the thing about being a grandparent. By the way, uh, this week, I, I, we may become grandparents, okay? Uh, our daughter is due on Friday and apparently she's going to be induced if she has not had the baby yet. I didn't mean to mention that, but it just came to mind, you know, because already we're like, oh, whatever this little precious girl looks like or, or whoever she is, we're going to spoil her rotten and we could never think of doing anything to her that, you know, punish, uh, corporal punishment, that's the parent's uh, responsibility, the grandparents' responsibility is just to spoil them to death and make it harder for the parents to, to, to uh, uh, exercise corporal punishment. But I could, we, we already are feeling that grandparent vibe. You know what I'm saying? And some people look at God as this you know, old guy, this bearded guy, and, and you know, oh, you know, those people can't help their sin. You know, let's just forgive them. Let's not make a big deal about it. People have that kind of image in their mind about God. Others may think of God as a friend. Now, doesn't the scripture depict God as a friend? Yes, it does. Such a friend. Jesus even told his disciples, I call you my friends. But what kind of friend is God? There are friends and there are friends. What is his friendship like? Is God a buddy? Is he a dude? Is he someone we pal around with? Are we going to get to heaven someday and imagine ourselves high-fiving Jesus Christ and we finally got there? Is that the kind of friend he is? You see what I'm saying? Our imagination is so important in informing the God that we're coming to worship. Is God awesome? That's what the scripture says. But does God rock? Is he the bomb? Is God a king? Is he a tyrant? Is he a dictator? You see, each of these expressions could arguably, arguably be consistent with the Bible's theological expressions about God, but they don't give us the same impression about what God is like. And I'm telling you, how we worship God is not so much informed by our creedal statements about God as much as it is in our imagination about what we perceive God to be like. There is no person I like to hear better on this subject than A.W. Tozer. And I'm going to read a few paragraphs this morning, if, if that's okay. If it's not, you're going to have to listen to it anyway. Uh, from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you've never read The Knowledge of the Holy, that ought to be at the top of your reading list when you're allowed to read something you really want to read instead of what you're made to read. This is something that really ought to be read. A.W. Tozer was primarily a pastor who went to be with the Lord in the early 1960s. 
he gave much of his time to contemplating the person of God. In fact, his biographer says that he would come in and tell his secretaries, don't, don't let calls get through to me, just take a message. And he would go into his office some mornings and he would get on his face on his office floor and meditate on a single attribute of God for about four hours. And he was also very concerned about the church's view of God. Because he could already sense in the middle of the 1900s in his generation, the church drifting away from a biblical understanding of God. This is what Tozer said in his opening chapter of the knowledge of the holy. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to stop here for one second. How many of you have heard this quote from A.W. Tozer before? Okay, I would expect a lot of you to raise your hands, okay? Because this is something that a lot of speakers quote. And some of them, I don't think, have actually read the first chapter of Tozer's book. This is at the, toward the beginning. A lot of your quotations you see are at the beginning of chapters, at the beginning of books, and nobody else knows what's in the rest of the book. But he's not talking about theological facts about God. In fact, that's the opposite of his point. He's talking about our imagination of God. And you'll see that. As you keep reading, he says, no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, it's high or low, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself and the most portentous fact about any man. In other words, the most telling fact about any person, where they're going to be in so many years. It's not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image. In other words, our imagination of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, he says. We might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. That our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements, that's, that's our, our systematic theology, our, our, the, what we memorize about God, our, our, our catechism and so forth. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, what we imagine about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. And he would never say our creedal statements are of little consequence. But in this context, by comparison, they don't add up to the other. It is my opinion, he says, that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. Wrong ideas about God, he says, are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines wrong things about God and acts as if they were true. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down 
for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. Though she may continue to cling to a sound nominal creed. In other words, you can, you can still talk like about God's omniscience and God's uh, omnipotence. And the fact that he's omnibenevolent. He's, he's, he's holy and he loves everybody. You can still talk about that but you can, and, and cling to it. But her practical working creed has become false, he says. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what he actually is. And that is heresy in the most insidious and deadly kind. Martin Luther is a perfect case in point. As a young man, Luther imagined God as a cruel tyrant. Have you read Luther's uh, biography? And, and about his, his younger life, he was a monk that grew up in the Catholic Church, and he imagined God as this cruel tyrant, the stern judge, unrelenting in his desire to punish any infraction that fell short of holy living. But when Luther discovered the doctrine of justification by faith in, in alone, in Christ alone, in, in other words, that God will declare us to be holy, to be righteous, not on the merits of our works, but on the merits of the works of Jesus Christ alone. When Luther discovered that doctrine, he was actually welcomed in his mind not into this dark courtroom facing a harsh judge, but into the arms of a loving heavenly father. And Luther's imagination of God was transformed. And because of that, by the grace of God, the church itself was transformed. It was not the doctrines that took a long time to fall away. And we ended up with Reformation doctrine versus Catholic doctrine. And a lot of the doctrinal creeds, between the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church today, you can find a lot of them that are very similar. But it's the imagination of God that was transformed. And ultimately, the church's worship was transformed. And Tozer's warning was that the church is once again in danger of losing the right image of God. Tozer says, one more quotation here, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. Because he says, we do the greatest service of the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God, which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. So Tozer argues strongly for this notion that if we are going to worship God, if we're going to respond to him in a way that is worthy of him, we must know who it is we are worshiping both in our understanding, in our creeds, in our, in our, in our doctrinal expressions, and also in our imagination. So, in closing, how do we obtain and maintain a high view of God? How do we impact our imagination about God? How do we have the right imagination about him. Well, obviously we can't emphasize enough the value of walking in obedience with God, following the Holy Spirit as we've been talking about in recent weeks, being serious about seeking his will, spending time with the Lord, seeking him in prayer so that he's real to you. 
But if we're going to know anything about God that is true, we must ultimately come to the Holy Scriptures. In fact, when the reformation of the church took place through the ministries of Luther and Calvin and other men, and the worship of the church was transformed, the most remarkable change is that the word of God was elevated and brought to the center of everybody's focus. I don't know if you know this, but before the Reformation, if we were to, to build a, a church building uh, from scratch and have it you know, the way everybody would have their church building, uh, I would enter in probably from the back, and uh, I wouldn't be in the center here. I would be off to the side. I'd probably climb up a little staircase into a pulpit and thunder down on everybody, okay, from, from on high. I should know it would be a really scary thing. Uh, but I would, I would be preaching from up there down to the congregation. And there was actually a big divide between the clergy and the laity, between the pastors and the church leaders and the church people. But as a result of the Reformation, the pulpit was moved to the center of the worship area. So that the word of God was the foremost object. It's not accidental that the pulpit is the main focus of the congregation. The place where the word of God is placed when it's preached. And when you walk in to worship God, you ought to be able to look forward. Every once in a while we have some special thing going on here and we have a a, a smaller pulpit. But but on a normal uh, Sunday, Lord's Day, except for maybe a rare exception, you look up here and you see this piece of furniture that is not an accident. This is a piece of furniture that we are taught traditionally. This holds the word of God. This is the place from which the word of God is preached. And it is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing we know is true. What God says And not only that, but before the Reformation, a lot of you know, the church made it a crime to translate the word of God into the language of the people. Luther risked his life to translate the scriptures into the language of his people, the German language. And following Luther, William Tyndale actually died as a martyr in 1536 because he was arrested and tried for giving the English-speaking world the word of God in the English language. His last words, his last prayer as they were, they were executing him was, God opened the king of England's eyes. And God was about to do that dramatically with several English translations that were set forth by the king's most righteous hand. In other words, he gave his uh, blessing to these translations in a very short time after this. In fact, every time you open a King James Bible and read it, most of the words you are reading are from the translation of William Tyndale, who gave his life so that we could have the scriptures. But isn't it true that today, because the word of God is so easy to access... We have several copies of it, several translations. We carry it on our device. I'm glad for that. We've got the word of God everywhere. But it also means we can take it for granted. So that it's always something we're going to get to, but we seldom do as much as we should. But if we're going to know God, if we're going to know him, we have to meet him in the pages of Scripture or the screen, or whatever. We have to have the word of God. And if we're going to meet him in the pages of this book, we have to read carefully and seriously and devotionally. We need a transformation in our understanding of how important this word is. In Exodus chapter 3, the Bible says that Moses saw the Lord manifested in the bush that burned with fire and didn't burn up. And so Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. 
you know, that is how often we approach the knowledge of God in the scriptures. I want to check that out. I'll turn aside. I'll find out some things about God. But as soon as the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And that is how we need to read the scriptures. We need to read with deep reverence and care and awe. God is not to be studied under a microscope. He has not revealed himself in the pages of scripture for our entertainment or our curiosity or as so many proof texts for our theological systems. If we are to know God, we have to read the scriptures often and with great attention, having taken off our shoes, as it were, in order to stand on holy ground. Read the word of God and read it again and again. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see God and a heart to know God. Don't be satisfied with knowing a little bit about God or a normal amount. I mean, I don't know any uh, more than anybody else we feel, and so that's okay. I'm, I'm at an average amount. Don't be satisfied with that because that's being satisfied with how much we know about God. Dwell on those descriptions and stories of God and the Son of God and the Spirit of God. Imagine God. Focus especially perhaps on those images and metaphors of God as he's revealed himself as our king, as our good shepherd. Don't read it like any other textbook or as a religious artifact or as a duty. But read it as what it is, the very word from God. And as you behold God on holy ground and speak to God and obey God, you will come to know not only who God is, but also what God is like. Your knowledge of God will deepen and your response to God in worship will deepen. And this pleases God the Father who is seeking worshipers to worship him. Father.